Good morning, everyone. It's actually really cool to see all of you today. I'm, a, I'm an extrovert, and uh, COVID is kind of hard for people like us. So meeting new people for me is like amazing. So I'm really honored and happy to be here today. Uh, and for those of you on the live stream watching, welcome as well. Um, my name is Brian Alton. I'm a pastor, as they said, with Church 21 uh, Montreal, primarily out in the West Island. We also have a gathering. Um, and um, so I was invited here. We've been following the same series together, so I'll be preaching this later on today as well. And uh, we're looking at Mark uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. My role at Church 21 has always been like the counseling guy. Prior to COVID, hugging people a lot. That's what I do. Uh, no hugging now, unfortunately. Um, and uh, I recently, you know, uh, actually am leaving my full-time secular job. I'm, I've been bivocational and I'm actually starting a counseling uh, ministry full-time, uh, my own practice. So if you guys want more information about that, you could connect with your, with your elders. Talk to Pamela. She's also a certified biblical counselor, so she, she can help you as well. Um, I don't know if you wanted me to invite people for that, Pamela, but I'm gonna, you're going to get referrals now. Uh, so there it is. Um, so yeah, I, I love caring for people. And uh, I think that God has a, a story. Uh, he wants to take authority over our lives. And he wants to do that in a personal way. And that's what we see in our scripture passage today. I'm going to read it. And then uh, we're going to see you know, what, who Jesus is. We're going to meet Jesus in a different way. We meet Jesus in a personal way, but we meet, G we forget as we are meeting Jesus sometimes how big this person is, okay? And so we're going to see both of those things in our scripture passage today. Mark chapter two, uh, verse one to 17. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on one bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes uh, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd 
was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me pray for us. Father God, you are a good and glorious God. I pray that in, these, in this scripture passage this morning and through the, this preaching, Lord, that we get to see just how big and glorious you are. Lord, help us see the different areas of our life that require us to submit authority to you. Lord, teach us by your spirit. Transform us and change us. And Lord, we ask this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. So I'm going to just take a quick thing of water here. And then write that down. So in the beginning, right, in Genesis, we rebelled against God. Uh, And our act of rebellion um, was belittling the name of God. See, I'm just describing what the problem is before I get into the text here. And we questioned his authority, and we've been questioning his authority ever since. Um, And that questioning, that separation, that eternal separation from God, that spiritual uncleanness, uh, right, is, is we see it throughout the Bible as things being holy and unholy or unclean. Holy versus profane. We were cast out of the garden because our sinful nature could no longer be in the presence of God. And we were eternally separated from him. So in our text this morning, what we're seeing is Jesus is now, uh, through these different uh, stories that we're seeing uh, Mark knit together, he's reclaiming his authority. And he does this in a close up and personal way. Jesus comes to tell us that he has authority over the broken world, both physically and spiritually. And he does this by changing our relationship with him, coming near to us. Someone who is perfectly holy, coming close to the profane and claiming authority over all of it. And he does this in a personal way. and, one of, and this is one of the main reasons that uh, Reach Montreal wanted to uh, do this series in Mark. That we're going to be spending like a year uh, doing this. is because we want you to know who Jesus is personally. We want you to get to know him in a way that maybe you haven't looked at before. And that's why we're taking our time. Because getting to know someone takes time. And so we'll grow with him. We'll grow in our affections for him as we get to know him through his, his word. And so here we go, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. I love this. We could actually miss this, and we might actually not even be able to, we're like, you know, like gloss over, okay, he's home. Home, Jesus is home. 
right? I mean, he's borrowing someone's home. He called uh, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and then he kind of took up residence in, in, in Capernaum with, with them. Uh, but this is his home base now. This is where he's going to be operating out of, and there he is. And I think this is important uh, for us to kind of see Jesus in his humanness at home. I, I just want to press in because we, we often forget that Jesus did the normal things of life, and this is where transformation takes place in the normal everyday life. And the word gets out that Jesus is at home. And so a bunch of people come, and in verse 2 it says, Many were gathered together that so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So there was a whole bunch of people, they were desiring to come and meet Jesus. Uh, Simon, Peter, uh, and Andrew, they opened their home, right? And this became Jesus' home. And we... We do this, right, nowadays in our community groups. Well, we can't, and that's part of the problem with nowadays. But we want to be able to open our homes and, and allow Jesus to take up residence in it, right? And this is the vision that we should have here, that as Jesus calls us into, uh, in, in towards him, that our homes should be open to others. And we can do life on life. And then in verse 3, and they came... They, some guys, four guys actually, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So these, these rooms, like it's a room that's probably... Could, probably hold maybe 50 people and it sounded like it was really jammed up the front door certainly we couldn't get in so they had to like climb a lot of these houses had these little ladders because they stored stuff up on top of the roof and it was like this thatched mud roof over beams kind of like you see beams here but probably not as grandiose as you see here and they had to actually tear apart and open up a space they had to break the roof to 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 do uh to do this, to, to bring their friend down through the roof over Jesus. This took a lot of work. This took a lot of effort. And Jesus saw this. And it says in verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So they saw this work. that he, Jesus saw the work that uh, these four guys and their friend who's paralyzed are, are, uh, are doing to get to Jesus. And Jesus saw that as an act of their faith, that they believed that Jesus could do something for them. And so he said, because of their faith, because of his faith, the paralytic's faith, your sins are forgiven. So they brought him for healing. So why did Jesus forgive them? So what Jesus is saying here is not necessarily that this paralytic was, was infirmed because of his sin. It could be. He didn't say that though. But what he is saying is that in general with the brokenness of the world, everything that goes on, everything that isn't working right is due to our sinful nature. Sin entered the world when we rebelled against God. And Jesus is saying here that he's forgiving his sin. He's, he's saying, I have authority over sin and the broken condition of the world. And it's interesting 
I find that when we look at this image and, you know, like Simon and and Andrew, Peter and Andrew were really cool about letting uh, people come over and they probably had to feed them and everything. But nobody complained about the broken roof. I don't know if you noticed that. Nobody, nobody complained about that. But there was somebody complaining about something in their hearts. And it says in verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right, right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's not just a simple declaration over someone. You know, like, so when we look at the story of uh, David and Nathan, and David is, is repenting of his sin, Nathan, as a prophet, declares that God has forgiven your sins. This is not, this is not like blasphemy. This is just We know, okay, you've repented, and God says, if you repent, you know, you're forgiven. And so that's what Nathan is declaring, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is going much further. He's actually saying he forgives the sin. He is declaring that over this person as one who is God. And so this definitely would seem like something so blasphemous to these people, these religious leaders, to be like, what is he saying? What is he doing? And he, but what Jesus is saying is that he is declaring his authority over sin. And he is able to forgive. And he is declaring his authority over the forgiveness of those sins. And it would be blasphemy, except that Jesus is now laying claim to being God. And this is important. And this is something we might even miss in this text. And to make it more personal, here's God in the form of man speaking and declaring forgiveness over someone. Can you imagine how this man felt? Like I guess, yes, he was looking for healing, but something different was happening. Jesus was declaring something else over him. And Jesus probably knew why he had to say this over him. I mean, in general, we know why, right? We all have, uh, we all carry this, uh, this sinful nature with us. But this man, imagine how he felt with somebody saying, your sins, son, like such, such intimate words, son, your sins are, have been forgiven. And Jesus can say that to each one of us. He can say, your sins are forgiven. He has authority over the sin in your life. He has authority to forgive the sin in your life. And yeah, there, there were those who doubted and they don't believe and they had trouble believing that God has forgiven them. We all know people, we ourselves, sometimes I have trouble believing that God has forgiven me for certain things and I need to be reminded all of the all of the time. And there are people who have sinned against us that we have trouble believing that God would forgive them. We set ourselves up in some way as an authority over their sin, over their forgiveness, and we withhold it from them. Yet Jesus says, no, I forgive sin, right? And we find that offensive. The scribes found this whole idea of Jesus forgiving sins offensive, and Jesus comes and challenges that. Remember, everything from the garden forward is broken, And the authority in our own hearts is broken. And Jesus is claiming authority over that. He decides decides how forgiveness is given. It's not on our terms. It's not in a religious box, right? Jesus says, I 
forgive sins. And in verse eight, it says immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? But, you know, so we see here, right? Like we always talk about how in the gospels, Jesus kind of checked his, his, his deity aside and that's okay, like he, he, but he still did some amazing things. But here what we see is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in him. We say that Jesus has all of the spiritual gifts. I don't know if you guys did that series on spiritual gifts, but you know, it comes out every time somebody preaches on spiritual Well, Jesus had all of them. Well, Jesus was using his knowledge and discernment here and perceiving stuff that was happening in their hearts, right? And then he, so it says, he said, which is easier so he, why, he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? And then he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? Forgiveness of sins is not something that's immediately perceptible, right? I can just say that. It doesn't really, it might not, it may or may not mean something to you, right? But so Jesus is saying, okay, maybe you don't see my authority over the forgiveness of sins, but maybe healing a man and commanding them to get up and walk will show that I have authority over all things. And the truth is, forgiving sins, because that's solely in the realm of what God can do, and healing someone, neither are easy. But it's the things that we can see, right? And it's the thing that they would see. Uh, and the scribes would have to perceive, they would be stuck almost perceiving that Jesus could do the verifiable, then the, other, the unverifiable must have been also done as well. And so he says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise pick up your bed and go home. And he, by saying he, he is the son of man and he has authority over this, he's claiming that he's the Messiah. It's a, one of these favorite titles and he'll say it more and more as in the, in the book of Mark later on. He identifies with his humanness but also being a Messiah, uh, the Messiah, and that God has given him authority over all things, like it says in Psalm 8, uh, and he, all things are subject to him. And so Jesus begins to define uh, who he is as a God-man on his terms. Not on our terms. Not in our religious boxes. Jesus wants us to know him personally. Jesus slowly reveals to us who he is on his terms. And then as we learn something new about Jesus, sometimes it can challenge a part of our life. And it can challenge things that need changing. When we realize, oh, that's who Jesus is? Wow. And then it's like, oh, that's what I have to change? Hmm. The Holy Spirit is an amazing, amazing person that comes into our hearts when we learn intimately more and more of who Jesus is and he wants to transform us. The scribes were calling Jesus' identity into question when they were questioning whether he could forgive sins. And it's easy to look at them as the bad guys, but in the world, we certainly do this too. We question Jesus' authority today. Every time we choose something over Jesus, we're questioning his authority. And we become like, well, we look, our sin looks back to Adam and Eve in the garden and that questions the authority of God over our lives. And so we 
can't really see ourselves as different from the scribes here. We always like to look at the scribes as the guys, the bad guys in the story, but we often need to actually ask ourselves, how are we like these scribes, right? So Jesus says in verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he, the paralytic, rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before him so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is like Jesus performing a mic drop before everybody. Like, yeah, okay, well, get up. Take your bed and go. Boom. And he leaves. It must have been quiet. It must have been like everybody was like, what? Like, what is happening here? They would have been so amazed. And we, we, we have to look at this scene. And, and, and Jesus is compassionate and he can heal people. You know, but that's not what he's about right here. Right now he's trying to say, I have authority over these things. And he's ushering in his kingdom and he's declaring his authority over the broken world. And Jesus is forgiving sins and the root cause of sickness in the world. And this should amaze us. This should make us really wonder who Jesus is. Verse 13 says, he went out again. Sorry, we're changing scenes, by the way. This is something I want to say. Mark is, is fun because he has a story, and then bang, we get to another story. It's like, you know, there's a lot of very few transitions in these stories, and it's, and it's like jarring sometimes. And even on myself, I'm like, oh, oh yeah, we're now we're on the sea. This is great. He went out beside the sea, and, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by, he, and when he, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to them, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Levi, the son of Alphaeus, we, we learn if we read in, in the book of Matthew and Luke like that uh, Levi, son of Alphaeus, is also Matthew, the writer of Matthew. Uh, he wrote the first gospel, though we're not likely, not 100% sure, but there's uh, a lot of strong suspicion that Levi is a Levite, so of the priestly class uh, or the priest, uh, of, uh, of Israel. And so He's a tax collector. And we already know that being a tax collector in this time was a bad thing. It's because you're basically taking from people to pay for this, um, you know, puppet government that's kind of ruling over everything. And, and people didn't like them very much. People really didn't like them. And so if you're a Levite, right? So you're this group of people who are supposed to be set aside to serve in the temple and you're tax collecting, it's even worse, right? Tax collectors are so bad, uh, so reviled, that even the rabbi said you could lie to him. I mean, like, you know, we know that people do this for their taxes now. We lie because we don't want to give the government uh, all of our money. Um, and so the rabbis were saying, you guys have permission to lie. You, can, you don't have to give them everything if you don't tell them all that you have, right? So this tax collector, Levi, became Jesus' focus. And we see again, like with Simon and Peter, that someone is abandoning their work, abandoning their, what they think is their life's call to follow Jesus. And Jesus comes to us, we can see, as he came to, Ma uh, to Matthew, to Levi, Matthew, personally, he comes to us personally, and he invites us to follow, us, follow him. And this means that there are gonna be parts of our lives that get disrupted. 
because we follow Jesus. Things will change. Your relationships in your family will change. Your relationships at work, your work might even change. And Jesus, when he comes to you personally like this, it's an invitation to submit to him, his authority over all of those things. I remember when I was coming to faith in Jesus and my whole life at the time was upside down and changing and I had lost a lot in that process. Like uh, I had gained Jesus, yes, but there was a lot of emotion in me that I had lost like people I cared about, a relationship that wasn't good anyway, but it was, I was still like healing from that. And then I was noticing that as I was Christian and something had changed in me, some of my work friends, my closest work friends, kind of distanced themselves a little bit. And I remember being overwhelmed by that and wondering, am I gonna lose this guy too? Is this friendship over? And, and I realized that, that there are, there's a cost, right? There, Jesus comes to disrupt your life. Sometimes things will change. And, it's not, and we look at them sometimes as bad. We're trying to hold on, right? We want to keep authority over our lives. But Jesus says, no, I must have authority over your life. And so this must change. And it's good. God does things for our good and for his glory, right? He doesn't do, he, he, he doesn't do that uh, just to punish us. He's not, God is not a punishing God like that in our lives. And again, another fast scene change. I'm telling you, if Judy, my wife, my wife's name is Judy, by the way, wonderful, wonderful woman. We watch movies together and she can't stand when scenes change quickly. She's like, I don't understand. I'm like having to explain half the movie to her again. And like this scene change happens and we're like, oh, she's like, I don't know, was this the future? Is this the past? I, like, and you know, movies nowadays, it's all future, past, and like, it's crazy, right? Can't keep track of anything. So here we are now, we're on another scene. Okay, but this is actually still related to Matthew or Levi in this case. Now we're at Levi's house. In verse 15 it says, and he reclined at table in his house, in Matthew's house. He, Jesus, reclined at table in Matthew's house. Uh, and many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Again, tons of people, right? And now this is at Levi's house. Like, like Simon and Andrew must have been like, yo, Levi, like, this is going to happen. People are going to come over and it's going to be like chaos, you know. But don't worry. Jesus is cool and you're going to do it and you're going to love it. So, so he has a party. Levi has a party and he invites all his friends, his tax collector friends, right? And it's a really, really cool thing. Now, one of the things that we see in this text is that Mark is using this literary device called symposium. Uh, Plato wrote a book called Symposium a long time ago. And it's this idea of this table fellowship, okay? And so we have this vision of table fellowship. And you'll see a lot of what Jesus does is over meals at a table. And in this uh, structure of Symposium, the invited or special guest is like at the table, at the seat of honor, and everybody in proximity to him based on their um, based on their status, is, 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 uh, is positioned to them, right? There's a, I think in Luke 14, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole scene, again, uh, where Jesus is actually not even seated at, 
not, is not even seated at the space of honor, right? He's God, right? He's Jesus. And the, and the Pharisee that invite him in puts him across from somebody who's suffering and ill, right? And if there's somebody who's suffering and ill at the table, usually they're at the back, you know, at the bottom. And, and so, so here in this story, we see that Jesus is as a place of honor and that people are seated around him and, and, and learning from him. He's the honored guest, and he's at the center. And they were reclining with him. And, and when, when Jesus, we see Jesus uh, recline, at a banquet, when we see Jesus at a meal, it's supposed to allow us to think about the future banquet table where we'll be invited to be with Jesus forever. We can read this in Isaiah 23. It's a beautiful picture. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make, make for all peoples a, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine, well refined. Lots of food. I love it already. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will take, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the picture of the banquet meal that we will have when Jesus returns in eternity with him when he invites us to, to live with him forever. And so when we read Jesus at table with other people, we should be reminded of this. It's something that we get reminded of in part during when we do communion, that we do this and that we remember him until he comes. We're having this, this symbolic meal that we do in remembrance of him until he comes. And when we gather as the family of God, it should remind us of the future banquet table with Jesus. And verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So now we're looking at this. You have the Pharisees and then you have the subset, the scribes of the Pharisees. I kind of, when I read that, I was like, it's almost like Dwight in, in the office where he's the assistant manager, he says. But here it's like, no, you're the assistant to the manager. The scribes of the Pharisees. You know, I'm a, I'm a Pharisee scribe. No, you're the scribe of the Pharisee, right? And so it's like putting people in their place, I think. I don't know. And so we see throughout the Gospels, right, Jesus is antagonistic with these, with these folks, like, because of their hypocrisy. I mean, they're not all bad, right? But some of them were known to be people who put law over law. And here in our passage, the, the, the Pharisees, that are the, the scribes of the Pharisees that are, are there, their hearts are revealed. And so we see here where they're saying, they're, they're calling others, others, right? They are sinners and tax collectors. It implies that the scribes of the Pharisees are not sinners. Maybe they're not tax collectors, but he's also saying we are not sinners. And we need to be 
woefully aware of our sinful condition and clearly they were not, right? They completely had forgotten that they too are sinners. And so Jesus says in verse 17, and when he heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So they were clearly, the scribes of the Pharisees were clearly blind to their sickness and sin. And, you know, I do, I said, as I said before, I do counseling. And uh, a lot of people walk into the counseling room, they know something's wrong, but they're often blind to what's really wrong. They think it's the circumstances around them. They think it's this happening to them or this person doing this and this person doing that. And yes, they need help and they need to be heard. Like when I think about the best example of that, I think of marriage counseling. A couple will come and they'll sit down in front of me and I'll say, okay, what's the problem? And then the wife will tell me what the husband is doing wrong. And then the husband will tell me what the wife is doing wrong. And it's like, oh, wow, I see and the biggest challenge, and I, this is the first homework I usually do with all, all couples. I say, okay, I've heard your story. This is great. You know, lots to work with. It's fine. But I say, now I want you guys to go home and list off all the reasons that you are responsible for why your marriage is where it, where it is today. It's so hard. It's so hard. Sometimes they surprise you and they come back with a list and it's great because the mission accomplished. Now, now we're getting somewhere because now at least I can see what's going on in my, I can, they can see what's going on in their own heart. I see what's going on in my own heart too sometimes when I counsel. It's truth be told. Um, so now they can see it, but sometimes they come back with this list and they go, well, you know, I get angry because my wife, you know, okay. You didn't get it, right? Like, you're still telling me what the problem is with the other person, but not you. And this is the problem, right? And we don't see, we don't see the depth of our, of our need for Jesus. We don't see the depth of sin in, in, our, in our lives. Um, and so folks, uh, folks who say that there are no problem, these are people who are self-righteous. They always have it together. And it's always the other person that's the problem. And people have to need, know that they need something. They, the, the paralytic and his friends knew that the paralytic was sick and that he needed something, right? And so that he needed healing. Levi must have known, Matthew must have known that he needed something because he was willing to leave it all behind and follow Jesus. Jesus showed his authority to forgive over sickness and sin. Jesus shows his authority over the brokenness of the world, uh, both physically and spiritually. And in each of the sections of our scripture, the paralytic Levi, the sinners and tax collectors, we actually might miss who this Jesus who has authority over these things is. And he wants it to be personal. And he wants to get personal with us. In first century Judaism, the idea of separateness, of clean from unclean was really strong. The whole, the whole sacrificial system was built up around that. And that's what these Pharisees were all about. It was all about clean and unclean. And when they watched Jesus doing all these things and the different stories that we've been talking about this morning, it must have been very jarring and offensive. Just understand what the relationship between us and God is. In Genesis, when we walked with God, we were in free proximity of God. We were naked and unashamed before God. There were no barriers, right? 
But then we rebelled against God. And because of our rebellion, God, who is holy, cast the unholy out of the garden. Right? And it's by grace that he did that or we would have been annihilated. Then God, later in the Old Testament biblical narrative, sets up this sacrificial system and he's going to make a holy nation so that people can come and worship and approach him the way God has defined it to be. Right? And so he sets up a way for people to draw near to God as God draws near to them. But if they come too close, sometimes people die. Right? We, we see this in, in many stories. In Exodus, when God is giving uh, Moses the law, right? he says, tell the people not to come too close to the edge of the mountain or they're going to die. That's one of the things he says. Right? And in the book of Numbers, um, when we see the arrangement of the camps, right? the Levites, we were talking about Levi today, but like the arrangement of the camps, the Levites were the closest people around the tabernacle to keep people away. Right? To keep God, in, in a lot of ways, from breaking out and killing people who didn't have, who were not like clean and, and, and who had too, too much sin and hadn't been uh, cleansed through the different temple rituals, right? And then we have Nadab and Abihu, which I never, I know them as brothers and I love their story. Well, I don't, it freaks me out. Here they are, right? They've just been inaugurated. Their dad has just been made a high priest in this tabernacle. And they're like, okay, like we're going to do this fire thing. And, you know, they didn't do it right. They didn't do it the way God wanted them to. And they go to offer this strange fire to God. And what happens? Bam, they're dead, right? This is because they disobeyed God. And then we see in 2 Samuel 6, the, the Ark of the Covenant was away from Jerusalem. It's being brought back to Jerusalem. Someone had in their head they're going to make a different cart than the one that God told them to make to carry the Ark. That's cool. You know, it was probably working okay for a little while, but something happened. It hit a, it hit a, a pothole. They must have had similar roads to us here in Quebec in Jerusalem at the time. And so this cart goes tumbling. Somebody goes to try to catch the thing. Boom, Dead. Right? Tried to touch the ark. No, nope, you got too close to the presence of God. You're dead. You got to feel this, guys. You can't get close to God. Right? God is holy and perfect. And our sin, sinfulness keeps us away from him. This whole temple... Right? We have to remember this, this, this tabernacle that was constructed and the presence of God came down in this structure right? to, to, have, to engage with us the way he wanted us to ga- engage with us. And we see in our text today, when we look at that room of 50 people, think about it, Jesus is in the center of it. It's like we can almost transpose that vision of the of the of the presence of God, now we have God as man in the presence of everyone. And they're crowded around. Can you imagine? This is God, holy. And all of these people are sinful. And they're like pressed up against him. And they're not dead. This is amazing. And imagine, now they're tearing a hole in the top of this structure, right? Kind of like tearing a hole in the top of the tabernacle and they're lowering a sick person, an unclean person, down before Jesus. Jesus doesn't kill him. Jesus forgives his sins and he heals him. 
Amazing that God lets us come near in a very close and a personal way. They're crowding around him and Jesus, Jesus doesn't kill them. Can you imagine if Adam and Eve, when they were thrown out of the garden, they're like, you know, we liked it better in there. And they go and they try to like dust it up a little bit with the, the angel with the sword. It wouldn't have gone well for them. They would have died, right? Jesus is showing that as he ushers in his kingdom, that here he is, the king, and that the unclean and sinful can approach him ever so closely, but not because he's worthy, but because he is our king, because he has authority all over, over all of it. He has authority over all of it, and he makes it possible through his life, his perfect life that we could not live, his perfect sacrificial death that paid for all of our sin that we could not pay, and then through his resurrection. And in his resurrection, if that were not enough, he gives us his spirit. And this is probably the most offensive thing. His spirit comes to reside in our hearts. The holy of holies resides in such a sinful, terrible place because he makes it clean, because he declares authority over it, because he makes us different and he makes us new. Because of Jesus, we no longer have to be spiritually clean to come to him. He draws near to us because of his righteousness and not for what we've done, but for what he has done and he makes it personal. Like Levi you can be sitting in the middle of your work and, and doing your job. Uh, and you might even be cheating people out of money or whatever it is you like to do. And instead of serving in the temple, and Jesus will show up and, 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 and call you out of your job personally. And he'll say, follow me. To be self-righteous is to live like Adam, exiled. But Jesus calls us out of that ex exile and to, be, and to draw near to him because he draws near to us. He, we need to know in that that we are sick, right? We need to know our need for him. We need to see Jesus as more glorious than the things that we want in this life. And we need to be able to place Jesus on the throne of our heart. Allow him, give him authority to reside there over us. So Jesus is a personal God that he comes and he draws near to us. And in every way of your life, he wants to draw near to you in a personal way and take his authority back over your life. He's already had it. He's always had it, even if you don't recognize it. So why not surrender? Why not say, Jesus, take this over? Think about the different areas of your life that somehow you still are refusing to give authority to Jesus, let him sit on the throne. Submit to him and let him declare authority over your heart, over sin, over the brokenness in your, in your life and allow him to let you get up out of the paralysis of your life and follow him personally and make you whole. Let me pray for us and I'll invite the band to come up to worship. Father God, you are a good God and we love you. We are so grateful that you break in to our lives, a world where we feel like we are the authority and you say, no, I have authority over this. And you claim it. 
but you don't do it in a way that, well, you do it in your way. And we are grateful for that. Because if we had our way, we'd probably mess it up. And so, Lord, we, we're so grateful that we get to see a vision of how you will break into our lives today and turn things up on in our heads and say, I have authority over your life. And you're asking us to surrender to you, to allow, to allow you to take control over area of our life. Lord, I praise you and I thank you that you do this. Lord, help us to see you as more beautiful than anything else. Help us grow in our affections for you. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us your son, Jesus, who does all this for us. And in we, pray, we pray in his name. Amen.